0: Well, good morning. It's really good to worship together with you guys. As we were singing here just a moment ago, I just wanted to sing out Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So beautiful, so good to worship together. Uh, My soul is blessed by your worship. Uh, For me to get to worship with you um, is just really an honor. Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This morning's message uh, in the study of learning to live and love like Jesus is on this characteristic. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. We'll jump into that passage in just a second. Just want to... Remind you, if you were here last week, uh, we entered into this season of Lent, and during this season, we have the cross up here on the stage, and uh, I hope that having the cross up here just causes you to remember uh, more than anything else, just to remember what Jesus accomplished on the cross on your behalf, but also just as a kind of symbolic reminder that the cross would get in your way. I know for some of you guys over there, maybe you can't see these guys over here because the cross is kind of in the way and you have to sort of, hey Seth, what's up? Gonna have to look, at the, look through the cross to see my man Seth over there. And Seth has to look through the cross to see Alex over there. And, and may that be truth for us that we would have to look through the cross, that the cross would get in our way Every time we look at someone or every time we think about something that the cross, we'd have to look through the cross in order to see what's on the other side of it. I trust that having the cross up here is just a reminder of lots and lots of things, but that you would allow the cross to be in the way. And the other thing I just want to remind you of is that we set up this little makeshift altar up here. And if there's ever a time in which you would desire to come to the altar uh, in a posture of worship to kneel and pray, there's nothing special about this place. It's just a, just a place that we offer for you to come and pray. We want to invite you to do that. Of course, you can always just pray at the altar of your heart anytime, uh, all the time. But we just decided to set up this space. We felt um, someone in our church felt the Lord leading us and we said, yes, let's, let's create this space. And so, so we have it here. Matthew chapter nine, verses nine through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, "'It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. "'But go and learn what this means. "'I desire mercy and not sacrifice. "'For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners.'" As we begin this message, I wanna be sure that you don't just hear Jesus talk about this. Jesus not just preaching this, Jesus lives this truth. This isn't something that he says, hey, this is a good idea for you or for my people. Jesus lives this truth. In his everyday life, Jesus is living this truth. This is an example here where Matthew and his friends kind of hear this, wow, they hear this mercy of God. They hear this mercy of God expressed through Jesus and they say yes, Matthew says yes, yes. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, I want you to hear that God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. As best exemplified in his son, Jesus, in his crucifixion, death, burial, and in his resurrection. In Mark's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Mark's gospel, Mark recounts the same scene that we just read but Mark shares it just a little bit differently. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip over to Mark, chapter two, verses thirteen and fourteen, just want you to hear how Mark describes this similar scene. Uh, Jesus is at home in his hometown in Capernaum. He's teaching, and people are starting to gather around. And uh, here we go once again. Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Okay, real quick. Levi is Matthew's Hebrew name. So when Mark's writing this, Mark uses Matthew's Hebrew name. But when Matthew is writing his story, Matthew is writing this story, but the name probably most likely given to him by Jesus When Matthew writes his biography, he uses his Christian name, Matthew. His identity has been completely changed by meeting Jesus. So much so that he uses his Christian name. When Matthew writes his gospel, he includes a list of all of the disciples. I want you just to hear uh, and see how Matthew describes the disciples and in particular, how Matthew describes himself. So if you're looking at Matthew, this is in Matthew chapter 10, uh, just the next chapter over, verses two, three, and four. So Matthew's writing this, and this is what he says. Uh, let's see if, if, there's, if there's anything that jumps out at you here. Uh, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, there's Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, Andrew, uh, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Did you hear anything unique in that passage? Did you hear anything unique in the description that Matthew gave? Did you hear anything unique about him, about the way Matthew described himself? What did he say about himself? Okay, okay. Everybody, like, what did he say? say he said he was a tax collector. Did Matthew mention anybody else's job? Did he mention anybody else's skill or abilities? Did, he didn't mention any of that. In fact, in the four lists of the disciples, uh, in the gospels, this is the only reference to anyone's job. Uh, we don't see anywhere where it says, Simon Peter the fisherman. Uh, we don't, we get a little bit, we get, we get nicknames, you know, we get, So-and-so is the son of, and we get their political affiliation, but the only spot where we get a job title is Matthew, who gives himself this title that says he's a tax collector. Do you think being a tax collector is something to be proud of? Yes or no? I don't think so. Why would he do that? Why would he define himself in this way? In Matthew's day, a tax collector was the most hated, despised, despicable human being in the society of Israel. Matthew is a traitor, an extortionist, a robber, and a thief, and a social outcast. In Jewish culture, to be a tax collector is to be a publican. That means that you as a Jew were used by the hated Roman government to collect taxes from the Jews to give to Rome. And if it wasn't Bad enough, you had to buy yourself into this position. And once the government stipulated how much the government was going to charge, you as a tax collector could add anything you want to the top and you got to keep whatever you added to the top. So no one, absolutely no one, enjoyed hanging around with a tax collector. Uh, Again, trying to figure out how to illustrate this to you. like, Like the guy who stole from his own people the meanest The vilest guy in town, I came up with this guy, this picture. I came up with the sheriff of Nottingham. Does anyone remember Robin Hood? Taxes, taxes, taxes. And Friar Tuck was running around crazy. If you haven't seen Robin Hood, it's your assignment for homework, When my daughter was little and we watched Robin Hood, uh, she would want me to fast forward on our VHS. She'd want me to fast forward through the parts where the sheriff of Nottingham was in it. Dad, he's a mean man. Dad, he's a mean man. In Israel, there were bribes and extortions and abuses that were out of control beyond what we could dream. The people of Israel hated tax collectors so much that the Talmud said, It is righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. Wow. Okay, that's not the Bible. Don't get it wrong. That's not the Bible. That's the Talmud. But that's how much they disliked tax collectors. They gave permission to lie to those guys. Uh, Tax collectors, publicans, not permitted to testify in court. They were never allowed to enter a synagogue or temple to worship Because the Jewish people believed that tax collectors had been cut off from God. Yet, Jesus tells this beautiful story, uh, this incredible parable. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Jesus is saying, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and crooks and adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week and I tithe on all of my income. But meanwhile, the taxman slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up. God, give mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home, made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. Jesus uh, proceeded to do the unthinkable. He calls Matthew to come and follow him. Matthew, a social pariah, to become one of his disciples. But I just go back to chapter nine. Jesus calling Matthew. It's probably one of the greatest expressions of mercy. Jesus sees Matthew. Jesus knows his story. He knows what everybody else in town is saying about him. He knows everything that he's done. He knows what he's become. And Jesus looks at Matthew and he goes, follow me. I want you to follow me. This is mercy. And Matthew at once gets up and starts following him. The symbolism here is really, really big. Matthew hears this invitation at once, immediately gets up and starts to follow Jesus. Matthew is leaving everything behind. It's not like the fishermen, Peter or Andrew, who can just like put down their nets and then later on they come back and they grab their nets and they pick them up. When Matthew leaves this position, he leaves it for good. The Roman government's going to have somebody else in that position in no time. So when Matthew gets up and walks away, he's leaving it all behind. He's cutting off his career for good. And why? To do what? To be a successful disciple Was it for a life promised with peace and joy and no conflict with his wife and kids? Is that why? (laughs) I don't think so. But in response, in incredible humility, Matthew accepts Jesus' offer, the offer of mercy and the forgiveness of sins. Well, here's how what Matthew describes That happens next, Matthew 9, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. What does Matthew do when he meets Jesus? What does Matthew do when he hears this invitation, when he decides that he's gonna follow Jesus? He throws a party. And who does he throw a party for? He throws a party for his people. The only people that he knows. The only people that he knows are people like him. They're tax collectors and other kinds of sinners. And this is not any ordinary party. This is a goodbye party. He's saying, I am not coming back. I am leaving this all behind. I'm leaving this old life. But I got to introduce you to this guy, Jesus. He is incredible. He's changed my life. He wants these guys to know all there is to know about Jesus. I don't know if you can imagine this kind of party, but this is the kind of party that I want to be invited to. Would you like to come to this kind of party? I would love to come to this kind of party. Heck yeah. Well, somebody's running the vacuum cleaner just to make sure that we're prepared for the party. (laughs) Making it clean. Sorry. I think I have ADD. Some church people find out about this party, and they're not too happy about it at all. Church people can get like that sometimes. When Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can learn a lot about somebody uh, by learning who sits at their table and learning who doesn't. You can learn a lot about somebody by learning about who sits at their table and learning about who doesn't. Seems like Jesus, everywhere we find Jesus, he's like pulling up a chair to a table. He's always coming and sitting down. He's always inviting people to come and eat. He's always hanging around where there's food. He wants anyone to come and sit with him and be with him. It's just sort of his way. In Jewish culture, to eat with another person was essentially to become one with that person. It's like a camaraderie, a fellowship, an intimacy. In the Revelation, John the Beloved writes these words of Jesus Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is saying, Hey, open the door, let's be friends. Let's eat together. Let's hang out together. Let's get to know one another. Come on, pull up a chair to the table. Pharisees don't like this at all. They, they don't like this at, They don't like that he's eating with those guys. Not those guys. One writer said this, in the ancient world generally, a shared meal was a clear sign of identification and for a Jewish religious teacher like Jesus to share a meal with such people was Scandalous let alone to do so in the unclean house of a tax collector. On hearing this, verse 12, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A lot going on in these couple of verses. Uh, Jesus is saying a lot. Uh, We'll just start with this phrase. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus is including these guys, right? The guys that are sitting around the table. These guys who are guilty. And he calls them sick because that is what they are. And he is their doctor, if you will. They aren't sick like the leper that we talked about last week. The leper we talked about last week was physically sick. These guys were soul sick, and Jesus wasn't just their doctor. Jesus was their healer. I love that. I think about this a lot. Jesus as our healer. Love this uh, couple of verses. Uh, Psalm 147, uh, verse three says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I won't ask uh, for anyone to raise your hand. I won't ask for a raise of hands or anything like that here. But I'd imagine there are people here this morning who are brokenhearted. And if that's you, I want you to hear God's voice speak to you. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jeremiah 17, 14 he says, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. Jesus says to these guys, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he says, go learn what this means. Go learn what this means. I love that. I thought about it. I thought about stopping the sermon right here. And I thought about saying, okay, go learn what this means and figure it out and then tell each other about it. And we'll pick it up next Sunday. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you guys hearing me? And they're all going, yeah. And he goes, go learn what this means. Go figure it out. Go, go figure it out. He's basically telling them to study the scriptures. Jesus is quoting Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. Go and learn this rabbinic phrase. Go and learn this passage that you should know. Uh, He's saying to these guys, Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's saying you need to study the scriptures a little more closely. In the passage in Hosea, God speaks to his people and he calls them out because they've lost the heart of worship. Even though they're going through, you know, the temple rituals, they're going week after week, they're showing up uh, to church, they're doing their thing, their heart wasn't in it. And he's saying, you guys, you guys are doing the same thing. You are preserving the external practices of worship carefully, but you've lost the heart. And it shows up most prominently in your attitudes And in this case, the way that they were treating, viewing, and not loving tax collectors and sinners. This is huge. Jesus cares more for the spiritual wholeness of people than he does about flawless worship. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I just got to say, this is one reason why I love Jesus. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. It is the character of our God. David cries out to our merciful God. Psalm chapter six, verses two, three, and four. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is is in deep anguish. How long? How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Psalm uh, chapter 51, verses 16 and 17, David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I'd offer it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Have mercy on me, God. Have mercy. Heal me, he says. Heal me. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul writes these words, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable, incomparable, incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus.'" Let's just keep this up here. Two quick questions. Stay with me. Two quick questions. What is God rich in? This is is an easy one. What is God rich in? Mercy. He's rich in mercy. And what does he want us? What does he want to show us? What does he want to show you? What does he want to show you? He wants to show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. Uh, told you about this book that I've been reading a couple times. Uh, Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. He says this, that God who is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe the most makes him hug the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means... Our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day, when we stand before him quietly and unhurriedly, we will weep with relief. Shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy rich heart we had. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. One more word. 1600s, a guy named Thomas Acampus wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ, and there's one line in that. He's an amazing line. One does not live in love without suffering. One does not live in love without suffering. We probably all get that. Uh, We could probably all say, yep, that's true. One does not live in love without suffering. We could probably all acknowledge this. There is no love without sacrifice. In this sense, Paul invites us to make our whole life a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Romans 12, verse 1. And this is what the Pharisees missed. This is what Jesus is calling out. They were choosing mercy for themselves and expected others to sacrifice. This is huge. Don't miss this. They were choosing mercy for themselves and expected others to sacrifice. For those who follow Jesus, we receive his mercy and then we begin to extend his mercy to others and it is going to feel like sacrifice. But ultimately, that's the very definition of Christ-like love, laying our lives down for the sake of others. We began with Matthew and Jesus. So we'll close close the message with Matthew and Jesus. Uh, These few verses in Matthew's gospel, they are a bit of Matthew's testimony. Uh, Matthew is writing uh, the story of Jesus, this great, amazing, incredible love story. And as a part of this love story, he just slips in these verses of his own story. He's able to put his story in the context of God's great love story. It's a little bit, just a little bit of his testimony this is really interesting. In writing this story, in these 28 chapters of Matthew's gospel, this is the only part of his story that he includes. Nowhere else do we hear Matthew's voice. Nowhere else do we see Matthew act. He never asks a question. He never makes a comment. He never appears in any healing or teaching or really any incident at all. He's actually voiceless and faceless through the entire narrative of the gospels he is the epitome of someone who knows mercy and not sacrifice he could have written pages and pages and pages and pages of his story but of the 1071 verses that he writes we get five of his story let me just pause here real quick if you were to write your testimony, how, how many words would you write compared to what, God has, what you've done and compared to what God has done for you? And if you were to write your testimony, like what would, what would mercy look like in your story? He takes the opportunity to write just a little bit of his story and he puts it in God's great love story. Mercy has that kind of effect on a person. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. The humility of Matthew is absolutely crazy to me. He knows, he knows what, he knows where he's been. He knows he's a sinner. He knows tax collector. He's got this overwhelming sense of God's grace. He's been undone by mercy. And so from then on, he doesn't need to jump into every scene. He doesn't need to say, hey, look at me, look at me. He doesn't need to be seen and heard. But then, one day, the Spirit of God asks him to pick up his pen. And Matthew is given the privilege of writing the opening of the New Testament, 28 chapters, of the majesty of the King and kings and Lord of lords. What kind of people does God show mercy to? What kind of people does Jesus invite to follow him the vile and the wretched and the rotten sinners and the most despicable people in society who are willing to receive his mercy and then to extend it, to throw a party for their friends, to let them know about what Christ has done. Two quick questions and one passage of scripture and I'll close in prayer. Where in your life do you desire to experience God's mercy? And to whom might God be calling you to express His mercy today? Hebrews. Chapter four, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Show us your mercy, O God, and teach us to be merciful. Have mercy on us, O God. Heal us. For we draw near here and now in our time of need. Here and now we receive mercy and grace our soul's greatest need. We give you praise. We give you praise.